Hey guys, before we get to this episode, I have a quick favor to ask you guys. Go ahead into Apple Podcasts, into whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Leave a review and a rating if you can. It helps us grow the podcast so much. We'd appreciate it a lot. We read five-star reviews on the show, so if you want a free shout-out, go ahead and do that. Just a five-star review. And if you uh, want to stay connected to us, uh, follow us on whatever podcast platform you listen to us. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. All right? Join the show. Hello and welcome back to another deep dive episode of The Final Third. My name is Jack Seepersod. I am a fan of Minnesota United, Chelsea Football Club, the French national teams, Atalanta, and of special importance today, the U.S. national teams. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, oh my name is AJ Tabura. I am also one of the co-hosts, a fan of West Ham United, the U.S. national teams, and Minnesota United. That's right. I switched up the order just a little bit. Uh, Jack, we are talking about a couple of different things today, namely U.S. soccer. Well, we are talking about U.S. soccer. We're talking about a lot of different things within that scope of U.S. soccer. Jack, how long have you been a fan of U.S. soccer or been, you know, casually in the know? Uh, Been watching it, I guess, since we started this in January of this year uh, and actually actively following it uh probably just around the nation's league all right that that's that's all right new fan but to be fair that means that you're more knowledgeable than half of the people in the u.s soccer federation yeah probably (laughs) uh well that is actually what we're gonna be talking about we're gonna be talking about that is the u.s soccer federation and really when you look at it i think u.s soccer in 2021 is at a crossroads on the field the u.s men's national team is fighting to avenge their failure to qualify in the 2018 World Cup. The women's national team is working to rework itself after a mediocre finish to the 2020 Olympics. Off the field, issues of the past decade persist. The equal pay dispute between USSF and the women's national team rages on. Ticket prices are acting as a paywall against some of the national team's most valuable fans. And U.S. soccer's outreach, as always, leaves a lot to be desired. And it leads us to ask the question, which is what we're going to be talking about today, is U.S. soccer doing a good job? And what does the future of U.S. soccer and the national teams look like? We will answer this question and some more things right now. But first, as always, follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, at Final Third Show, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify or whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. You guys already know the drill. Uh, and with that, let's talk about some, well, Jack, would you rather talk about some on the field issues first or on off the field? We could switch around however you feel. Let's go to on, on the field issues first and then move to off the field. I All think. right, Jack, I'll ask you another question because we are going to be talking about both uh, sides of the coin, the men's national team and the women's national team. Would you rather start with the men's side or the women's side? Let's start with the men's side. All right. All right. So th- the way that I kind of, because I, I've, I'm obviously the one who, as Jack mentioned, has been following uh, U.S. soccer for a longer time. I'll, I'll be leading the conversation. And the notes that we've taken down, to be clear, are going to be more qualitative. We have done some research on the general fan uh the the fan 
perception of U.S. soccer and what they think about these different issues. But a lot of this is going to be looking at the past couple of years, more recently, very qualitatively. Obviously, we have some numbers. Obviously, we have some uh, reports, some articles to talk about. But a lot of this is going to be either emotional or uh, not numbers-based evidence, to say the least. So let's start off with the U.S. men's national team. Uh, going over some of the issues that I see on the field for the U.S. men's national team as of late, you can automatically point towards uh, the mediocre World Cup qualifying window that they've had. Uh, they've recently failed to qualify for the Olympics for, what is it, the third time now, haven't mm -hmm. since 2008. Yep. Uh, they have a head coach that allegedly hasn't maximized on players' potentials. Uh, it's a very MLS-heavy coach, like Greg Berhalter loves to lean on MLS guys or guys that just in general, even if they're not in MLS, most fans do not deem worthy of being part of the men's national team. And that leaves us to ask the question, like, do we really want Berhalter leading the next generation? The positives I can see uh, are recruitment. I think that on the field, Berhalter's recruitment and getting talent onto the field has been really good. We can point to, obviously, the two trophies in one summer. Very, very good. Historically, very good. Uh, and just some positive development for various players for the national team. Under Berhalter, we've had a lot of star players emerge in their own merit on the national team. So that's, that's obviously really cool to see. We can look at the emergence of Matt Turner, Miles Robinson, Brendan Aronson, uh, P. Falk as some uh, success stories out of the Berhalter regime, the, the recent U.S. soccer regime. Jack, right off the bat, U.S. men's national team, on the field, how U.S. soccer is dealing with it, appointing Greg Berhalter, handling all these things, positive or negative so far? I think overall positive, but okay. uh, again, I, I have a different perspective than most people. But uh, on the World Cup window, like the World Cup qualifying window, I mean, I could be naive on this, but five points is about what you should expect to get like to the final stage mm -hmm. to qualify because there were two away games and one home game, five points from it, one win, two draws, draw your away games and uh, win your home games. Although. Yeah. Uh, it, whole, yeah. Yeah. it flipped around a little bit, but I, I think like, you know, overall, it's a decent enough window. Uh, you know, that we, we were missing some players for some of those games. Pulisic was missing against El Salvador. Uh, Zach Steffen had COVID. You know, mm -hmm. we, we had uh, we had quite a uh, and of course, Weston McKenney, but we'll talk about him later, I'm sure a little sure. bit. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I think overall that it was pretty good on the field and like, you know, the Gold Cup is great evidence that the on-the-field stuff can be really successful because Berhalter called up an MLS squad, for the most part, and made them into a, a machine, pretty much, that won every... Or yeah, every they, game. They won every game? Or yep. did, oh, yeah, we did win every yep. game. I thought we yep. drew one, but nope. no, uh, we won every <laughs> single game. So, yeah, I mean, that that's... That that's good results. You can't really argue with with uh, with with uh, some of the results that we're seeing yeah. in there. But I, I will play devil's advocate. Okay, and I, I will have to because this is the discussion that we're yep. having, right? From what I've been seeing from a lot of circles, and you know, prior to this episode, I I did so much like just general fan uh fan opinion gauging on Reddit, on Twitter, on just. Instagram, like all these different social medias, what what journalists are saying. And I think the main criticism, like, yeah, we can look at the results being 
fine for what it is. But I think a lot of people are harping on the general performance within those results. Like, did we look comfortable in that win prior to that second half? Probably not against Canada, probably not. El Salvador, probably not. And you look at the Gold Cup, we got some good results there. But if you remember, a lot of that came from Mexico and Qatar in the final semifinal, respectively, missing a lot of their chances. Qatar skied a penalty. And a lot of those wins were very shaky 1-0 wins. In fact, I think every single one of those games, other than the Martinique game, was a 1-0 win. So it's That's not, true. It's true. So it's not like we have been dominating. And in fact, that's a major criticism of how U.S. soccer has uh, gone about these past couple of friendlies, past couple of competitive tournaments and competitive matches, is that we're kind of just grinding out results when when you look at our squad, we should be doing better. We haven't really seen a game where it wasn't against some total minnow and their C team that we have very much looked comfortable at. And I think there's some stats saying that uh, the win record, the, the essentially the goal record uh, between top 50 ranked FIFA teams versus the, the, the uh, not bottom, like the, the, the teams in the FIFA rankings above 50, like 50 to 100 and what have you, it's a, it paints a stark difference. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but the fact is like our performance, you know, qualitatively looking at those games has not been the best. Like Jack, what, what do you say about that when you look at how U.S. soccer is dealing with that? Do you think that's a fair criticism or, or are you like it's taking like other fans' opinions out of this? Do you just value results over performance? I, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's nice to dominate games, right? But mm-hmm. if you get the results, ultimately, that doesn't matter. Uh, I, I, that, that's, that's, that's my view on it. You know, it, was it pretty the way that we beat Honduras in the first half? No, it wasn't. But whatever happened in uh, the, it, at halftime, whatever Greg Berhalter said and the substitutions he made for halftime, especially Anthony Robinson being, uh, being one of them, you know, that that changed the game. So it, I, I'm more of a more of a fan of some of the decisions I've seen because almost every tactical decision I've seen, bar for like the, the Canada game, yeah, bar the Canada game, have been very good. And maybe the starting him. lineup for uh, Honduras, I would say. Yeah, but overall, he's reacted to problems and changes in game pretty well for the most part. Mm-hmm. Canada game being an exception, but Honduras. Made the perfect subs all throughout the Gold Cup. Same thing. Uh, so, uh, but I think some of it also has to come down to some of the players in some of the positions yeah. just aren't performing, especially at striker, where mm-hmm. we create a ton of chances, but not, no one's clinical enough to finish them. So that doesn't help. But Burhalter fixed issues that he created. True, true. So, so in another alternate dimension, when we have another head coach, would we be better off or, you know, worse off? I don't know. But that's actually the question I'm going to ask you right now. Because uh, in my mind, I'll, I have a couple opinions. I'll ask you first. What does the future of how U.S. soccer deals with U.S. men's national team look like? Do Should we move on from Greg Berhalter right now, soon, after the World Cup? How should we deal with the on-the-field U.S. men's national team from a structural point of view? Well, I don't think we should like fire him or anything. I, I, I know a, a lot, lot of people disagree. With I know a lot of people, a very disagree. big amount of people yeah. disagree with you. But I think that would be a terrible decision because 
trying to replace a coach in the middle of World Cup qualifying windows. That's not going to be easy to do, especially since Burhalter has a system, sort of, and a good relationship with a lot of these players. You know, a lot of the players that are in the player pool that we consider like stars for the national team right now were actively recruited by Burhalter, like dual nationals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, he's like, built that culture, you know? Exactly. So, there, he's done some good things uh, for the players and for the culture. He's fostered a culture of belonging. Maybe that that's like, uh, you know, why players like Ricardo Pepe chose to play for the yeah. U.S. Uh, so, I, I, I think that he's done overall a very good job. And I think we should give him at least the World Cup qualifying window. Like, it, I, I don't blame him too much for the El Salvador game because, it one, it's tough to play in CONCACAF away games. And two, he was missing Christian Pulisic. He, uh, let, let me just look at the, at the starting lineup of, of, of this again. Like, I mean, we, we were missing quite, a, quite a, a few players. You know, we were missing some of our first-choice center backs. You know, John Brooks wasn't playing. Tim Ream was playing, for example, which... And Tim, was, Re- Tim Ream had a better window, if I'm being honest, than John Brooks. True, true. <laughs> uh, DeAndre Yedlin started sure. at right back. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Dest was our was our left back over Anthony Robinson. And, you know, that, that, that game, there were a lot of... There were some problems with that starting lineup, but a lot of it was forced by injuries and stuff. So I think... Give him time. If, if the next window goes terribly, like we we end up getting like three points out of nine, sure. f- fine. Maybe you can consider sacking him or something like that. But in until that window happens, I think that this window, while not spectacular, was good enough and a good start to the qualifying window. We're in third place. We are, are joint with uh, Canada and Panama on points. I mean, we're we're keeping the pace with yeah. the other teams. And keeping if, that p- yeah, pace is important. Exactly. So I I think you know you, you have to give him some time to play in like you know his first World Cup qualifying tournaments, and he hasn't had a ton of exposure to playing away games with the U.S. team yeah. because there was an entire year where none of that happened. So yeah, I, I think time time is necessary. Yeah, I well, I, I do feel like he has had a lot of time. And from what I've seen, and I've been critical of Berhalter. I've been pro Berhalter a lot. I think I'm I'm Berhalter neutral as as like in general, but I feel like he he has had a lot of time to adapt, and and I think he he's abandoned. He's uh he's adopted abandoned that adopted this like different tactical profiles that has worked has not worked. So it, it's. It's kind of hard to say that he's been great tactically, uh, but there is something to say about continuation and how important that is, especially with that culture. And I, I know Jordan and uh, Logan have talked about this on stateside, how hard it is to find any great candidates uh, to replace Berhalter because you either have you know an MLS coach, which is fine. They might not be the best tactically, even though I think Brian Schmetzer would be a great choice. Uh, but at the same time, if you go for someone like Antonio Conte, not saying that we would ever get him, but an international coach, can they continue that same culture uh, that got all these different players before? I don't know. Uh, so I guess that's what the, the future U.S. men's national team, our consensus, is different from other people's consensuses. Uh, people are more negative on the U.S. men's national team as a whole. Let's move on to the U.S. women's national team, though. 
the issues that people have seen is this is the second Olympic tournament in a row where we fell below expectations getting the bronze. Vlako Andonovsky is a head coach that, like Berhalter, you could say has not really maximized uh, uh, players' potentials. And we've been married to the old guard of Carly Lloyd, Rapino, you know, those players, which kind of has held back our evolution going into a new era of younger U.S. women's national team stars, which could have aided to our stagnation within, uh, within the Olympics and our failure there. Uh, some, some more criticisms. I, I remember Gianna, when they were on, mentioned this specifically. We've been playing friendlies against easy opponents, which also aids in our stagnation. And that brings up the question, again, just like Borhalter, do we really want Vlaco to lead the next generation? Positives, we've won the She Believes Cup. I guess that's, that's cool. Oh, yeah, we had a long win streak. Obviously, we won the World Cup. We're still the champions there. Overall, we're still good, so... I don't know. We have a, we have a good crop of uh, new young players who uh, Gianna mentioned some of them when they were on. Jack, U.S. women's national team. Are you pro or negative on how they've been doing on the field? Uh, it, it's, it's interesting because I, I think there's definitely been some pretty bad performances. Uh, the Canada game in the Olympics where we lost out on the chance for the gold medal match. Uh, I stayed up very late to watch that, and I was not impressed in the slightest uh, to, <laughs> with, with the performance that yeah. was put in there. So there's been some very negative performances, but I also don't think that it's something that the U.S. women's team can completely account for because okay. I, I, think the, I think the reason why it's getting tougher and tougher for the women's team is because for years and years, uh, you know, the, the U.S. was ahead of its time with women's soccer. Like in, throughout the 70s, we, we had uh, developed like our, our women's soccer infrastructure because it was, it was like the primary sport advertised to, uh, to girls in, in uh, mm -hmm. like elementary school, middle school, we, high school. We and, had the infrastructure right. when other countries did not. Exactly. And now all of a sudden, uh, the U.S., has been cruising along on a relatively easy path. There's been a few countries that have shown signs of catching up, but now, like, they're actually catching up and actually competing. Like, uh, so I, I think that that's part of it, that we, that, I, I shouldn't say we, because I'm not part of the U.S. Soccer Federation, but <laughs> uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation is, has been too laid back on that and hasn't been trying to go bold with some of these decisions instead preferring to go with this because, Oh, they've been so dominant in the past. Why don't we continue with that? But not understanding that the entire landscape of the sport has changed. Like it's not like uh, the, the men's game at all where it's been pretty consistent where it's been really good uh, countries and like uh, the, where the infrastructure has been there for a long time. But you know, all of these countries are catching up and no one seems to, to bat an eye at it, I, I, like at like the U.S. Soccer Federation level. And I think uh, part one thing that, that is clear is Vlatko is probably not the right guy for this okay. job. So, so, yeah. so are, are you pro uh, Vlatko out then? 
I think so. I, I'm, I'm not. I, I can't remember how many how long he's had uh, with the with the team. I, I think he, he since had, the end of the 2019 Women's World Cup. Yes. And on. Uh, after the victory tour, uh, Jill Ellis. Uh, right. Since moved on, he took over. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the the way that I see it, and I the way that I see how U.S. soccer has dealt with the U.S. women's national team is specifically on the field. Is I I, I think I think they did choose a a, a little bit of con, a, a conservative. Uh, I was going to say the head same coach, thing. Yeah. Uh, a little bit, a uh, pretty different from Burhalter, who tries. Uh, Maybe too much stuff. I, I think Flacco tries too little. Too little, <laughs> and it is a bit stagnant with in-game decisions. Uh, one of the big criticisms I had of the U.S. Women's National Team at the Olympics was his inability to really adapt to different game plans. We saw that in the first game against Sweden. Uh, he was completely caught off guard and didn't really have any adaptation. And it really, this was completely out of the U.S. Women's National Team, like the players' control. And it, it was really like a, a product of how he gave the roles to the different uh, players there. So I, I think it's a major criticism. I, I think I really wanted to see U.S. soccer push for a more younger generation at the Olympics, specifically because, if I'm being honest, the Olympics is important, obviously, but it's also less important than the World Cup. And I think now that we have not really played a huge competitive tournament with the younger squad, that leaves a lot of pressure towards the She Believes Cup, uh, the qualification tournaments that we're going to be in, CONCACAF Cup, whatever, which aren't going to be as high stakes as if we had the Olympics filled with, not filled, but like uh, uh, more younger players, less than 24. If I'm remembering correctly, we only had one player under the age of 24 on the, the U.S. Women's National Team roster, or one player that was 24, had no people under 24 which is an indictment when you consider that part of uh, U.S. Women's National Team's strengths is our continuation of power given like throughout all these different eras. And if we have just a gap between, you know, the, the last golden generation and now, we have a lot of making up to do in the next two years. And I think personally, Vladko, I agree with Jack here. I think he's not the man for the job. And I know a lot of people got in my case for saying it, but when you consider that, what, the next World Cup is 2023 in Australia, New Zealand, we are at the perfect time, unlike with Burhalter, because the World Cup's literally next year, we have a two-year gap to get a new head coach and get a new identity or just have a new head coach and get their identity in. Like, there's more room, wiggle room. Jack, do you have anything else to say about the U.S. Women's National Team and the future of what it will look like? Well, I I, I did want to bring up one other thing because sure. on the lineup or not lineup, the squad that was chosen for the Olympics, it it felt very much more like a team that wasn't trying to win, but like uh, win trophies, but to win fans, uh, if, okay. if that makes sense. So like uh, they went with safer choices for fans so like uh you know people are people will watch and like do and like uh support it but but and, and I, I think that's the casual fan and, and i I, yeah. I also i don't know if i completely agree with that because like what uh n- name some of the names on that i see you have the lineup up uh rapino lloyd yeah, sure. press uh was Mo- i know morgan started a few yep alex morgan tobin heath uh rose lavelle uh 
Horan, uh, Lindsay Horan, uh, Julie Ertz, uh, Crystal Dunn, sure, Becky Sauerbrunn, uh, Adi French. It, it gets it gets less <laughs> obscure, <laughs> yeah. or more obscure, I should say, as as it goes down. Yep. But I think that some of the draw to keeping some of those players in was maybe it was in anticipation of like Carly Lloyd retiring or mm-hmm. something like that, or Megan Rapinoe probably getting pretty close to that as well. Yeah. So uh, may, maybe that's why it was like more of like a, a, a great send off type thing. And maybe, maybe we'll see them call it more things, but I don't really have much hope for that. Yeah. If, if I'm being honest. I, I, I think there was an element of like social clout chasing uh, in there because obviously if you start Rapino, if you start Morgan, if you start Lloyd, like all of the the casual fans were like, oh yeah, that was, that was the gal who scored the hat trick in the 2015 World Cup. Right. That gets attention. But at the same time, throughout this episode doing research, when you go into, you know, very specific women's soccer communities, they're thinking the same things that we're thinking. And that's why I think that the future of U.S. soccer dealing with the women's national team on the field has to be from an evolutionary standpoint evolving how we uh deal with the game growing it as the rest of the other countries grow as well and being able to adapt to uh an aging squad and get a younger squad in there i think that i think that's we're at the crossroads in that sense where we have like those two eras one of them starting one of them at the at the dusk of its time i think that's very important to remember with the u.s women's national team and I think that's, I think we're both in agreement. I think most of the the more hardcore women soccer fans would be in agreement. People who just watch like every four years for the World Cup or the Olympics, they might have different opinions to say. And of course, like just dudes will have a different opinion to say. Unfortunately, we'll get into that a little yep. bit more later. Uh, Jack, anything else to say about women's national team before we move on to some off the field stuff? No, let's move on to the off the field. All right, so Jack, I have a couple of things to say about the off the field stuff. So I have four different categories of like okay. different issues off the field. Uh, I know you, you wanted to talk about McKenney. Was there anything specific you want to say about Weston McKenney and how U.S. soccer specifically dealt with that, or whatever you want to say about it? I guess we haven't really talked about it since it's happened. Yeah, I mean, it's it's more about like uh, almost an indictment of transparency at sometimes i mean i get there's a yeah, there's transparency a, is like an issue yeah. people have with u.s soccer so it is important that we talk about yeah it. so like i i mean i understand u.s soccer kind of wanting to keep it under wraps because they dealt they felt like they dealt with it and everything and fans aren't necessarily owed transparency uh on every single situation that happens and need to know 100 percent of the details that's fair but i also think that it's kind of a larger trend that we see where these things aren't really addressed so when something like this happens so suddenly especially when it's like a star player that then there's a lot of questions that get asked over it uh so and it, it brings up more and more issues over you know why are why uh you know why aren't any of these things ever brought up and why aren't we transparent about anything? and i think that you know u.s soccer does owe the fans a little bit more transparency on things. Well, like, what do what do you define as transparency in this sense? Because I'm I'm going to bring up transparency later in terms of the West Women's National Team equal pay uh, issues there. But in your mind, like like what is what is the difference between them saying, uh, "Oh, uh, McKenny was sent home because he violated 
uh, team policy versus whatever ideal that you and fans want. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't necessarily care to know exactly what he did. I'm just saying. What what level of transparency do you want? Yeah, I I mean, I'd like to I'd like to, you know, know a little bit more. Like, was he uh, was he like, you know, refusing to wear masks or something? Was he like was he uh, like partying outside outside of the room? Like, because it, it, it does inform like how fans should feel about it uh, about players as well because like if he was doing something terrible then i feel like people should know about it and like i i, I but, but we know he's not doing something terrible i know because yeah they, there, there's I, no like police involved or like yeah any, and i feel like we would have heard about it so if you use context clues and this is where i would have been at with the mckinney situation was because we haven't heard anything bad then the obvious like conclusion that you make is like oh it's something like like that's personal like it's like something like either uh, a covid infraction or it's something like like a personal issue which in that case like i i still don't understand why we need transparency in that sense when we have like all the information that we need to judge him as a player given his uh medium infractions like not too big like not too small that doesn't matter it's just like oh he did something that disappointed the team okay i i guess the main issue i really have with it because i I, i'm on the same side as you really i don't really care to know what he did but the problem with not providing a certain level of transparency is that it allows media to go crazy over every single detail Mm -hmm. and like for people to leak in in air quotes there uh for the listeners at home since you can't see them but to leak what what he supposedly did and then that having negative effects elsewhere so i think that you know uh, i i understand why that what they said is sufficient really and it should be sufficient but it also it it, it i guess it's more of an indictment of media culture than anything that, yeah that, but i i feel yeah. yeah i feel like there there's there, there probably is a better way to like stem that off. I have no idea what it is because I don't study media. So, um, but I, I feel like it, it's just, it, it's really tough because I, I, I think, you know, there, I'm just going in circles at this point, but <laughs> no, I, I, I understand, <laughs> but it, it's just, it's just frustrating because, you know, we, I, I feel like us soccer should be able to assert itself over the situation and, like define the narrative mm-hmm. over what needs to be said but but, but that, yeah. that is a good way to, to put it like like there's a difference between just releasing a statement and dominating the narrative even though i don't want them to dominate the narrative yeah. because i want them to just, you know tell the truth but if the truth is going to like hurt personal people and like all right so so the one of the rumors was that mckenny like uh invited a, a sister of a team. I can't believe I'm saying it's like a sister yeah. of a teammate over. And and uh, no, the the media kept repeating that. Yeah. And then it led to U.S. fans harassing. I think it, I think it was Pulisic's sister that sure, they said. Yeah. And because I remember her responding on Instagram saying, or actually I think going private on Instagram and just like deleting everything mm-hmm. because people were harassing her. Yeah. For for something that she didn't do. And that, well, that's the, we, that's we the issue. I guess we don't really know well, like what happened, but yeah, but it's either, I guess two things could be true here. It's either 
nothing actually happened and U.S. soccer made a mistake by not specifically saying like what it was because it could have been just like, oh, McKenny uh, uh, just went out to party. Yeah. Or if th- that did happen, the rumor did happen, them saying the truth would be harmful. So it's a, it's a catch-22 based on like what actually happened. I, yeah. yeah. I also don't know the exact answer. I, I know... And this is where I'm going to bring up the fans and how, what they think. Obviously, they want to hear as much as possible because that's just who fans are. Yeah. But in this specific instance, I think U.S. soccer made the best choice out of bad choices. True. Know? Like Pro- I, I, Out of a selection of bad choices, I can't see how U.S. soccer dealt with this could de- deal with this any better than yeah. what they did i i guess by bar, by omitting supposedly mundane details it only leads to more speculation mm-hmm. so i feel like they could have just specified slightly more than covid infraction like yeah. a covid infraction like specifically leaving the quarantine team area yeah and then that then like you're you can put like a physical reason to it because covid infraction can mean so many different things and by its very nature breeds speculation so I feel like there there could have been it's you're right. It's probably the best option mm-hmm. that they did, but they probably could have done just a little bit more to kind of stem off more speculation. All right. I guess. Sure. Sure. U.S. soccer has a lot to learn with uh, how to handle media, yeah. specifically how they almost bully journalists into agreeing with the Federation, taking away their credentials if they if they leak something or say something that they don't like. Which is maybe why we didn't see any journalists like tell anything about anything until a, a little bit after. In which case, that is a pretty big indictment on U.S. soccer's part. What were they doing in the background? I don't know, and I think that's a large part of where that that transparency or lack thereof exists. Let's talk about ticket prices, Jack. This is oh, okay. something that was yeah. <laughs> really really big in the news this past week. U.S. Soccer released the ticket prices for the upcoming World Cup qualifying game uh, against Mexico in, oh man, I can't believe I'm forgetting, Cincinnati? I yeah, think Cincinnati, Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. uh, Columbus has right. Costa Rica, right. Uh, and the absolute worst seats in terms of the view, in terms of quality, went for $125. The rest of the tickets ranged from $200 to $300 on the average. I think the top level one was $1,000. So, obviously, that's expensive. That's definitely not cheap. Uh, This is also part of a larger trend we see, not just in U.S. soccer, but in sports in general, of exponentially increasing ticket prices. Looking back at our friendlies, the Gold Cup tournaments, the Copa America that we hosted in 2017, which was way overpriced. All of them were way overpriced, even for tournaments that hosted some of the best teams, friendlies that had a good amount of uh, quality teams. We're, you know, it's expensive and a lot of people have issues with it. It's a trend that I guess we could see in other sports. Why well, I mentioned that like basketball, like all, all high level competition that people want to see is increasing. But specifically with U.S. soccer, who has a role in growing the game to see this amount of profit driven greed, one might say has rubbed a lot of people off the wrong way. Jack, real quick, initially, what are your opinions on 
the high ticket prices that we can discuss some more later. Well, I think it's dumb for one to price tickets super high from a consumer perspective because if U.S. soccer claims to want to grow the amount of soccer mm-hmm. fans in the U.S., uh, um, they they should price them relatively low and make them affordable for people because no first time fan is going to want to pay. What like what's the lowest bracket? One hundred twenty five dollars to watch the the U S play. Like even if it's against Mexico, they they like if they're a casual fan. I have so many friends who are just like casual fans of soccer. Who uh, if I if I invite them to a game, they'll be like, "How much is it?" And I'll be like, "Oh, uh, well, you know, the tickets are like ten, fifteen bucks or twenty bucks for uh, twenty five. I think is like some of the cheapest I've seen for Minnesota United. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. And, and they'll be like, "Oh, yeah, that, that's that's pretty reasonable for like ninety minutes of action." Sure, uh, but no, no first time fan is going to really take the risk uh, of paying one hundred and twenty five dollars for something mm-hmm. and not and and then not getting it. But obviously, these ticket prices aren't priced for first time fans. They're priced for hardcore fans because they know, uh, and I'm going to use my economics education. Yeah, I was going to say like, yeah. like you have actually studied economics in yeah. college. I took an economics class in high school, so obviously we're both qualified. Yeah. But what in your like economics education has like influenced you to what you're about to say? Well, like, like, what do you think? It, about it's it? clearly an optimization equation for them. They're trying to optimize the profit. Uh, given you know the consumers and their preferences it's basic uh microeconomics or yeah basic microeconomics really they're trying to price it uh price out the market to figure out what consumers will pay and what they know is like a lot of like ultra fans on the u.s level their elasticity or how or how likely they are to change their consumption uh based off of an increase in price is pretty low in that if prices increase, they're probably still going to buy tickets. They want to see the U.S. men's national team. Exactly. So it's an economic consideration for them to say, okay, we can price these tickets higher because we know they'll buy them. And therefore, it cancels out all of the other stuff that's, that, uh, that we would have gained. It cancels out the supposed market that, you know, of first-time fans that are just looking for, yeah. for to get into it. Like, they, it's, they have much less market power than... Uh, long-time hardcore fans and because of that they feel like they can get away with pricing it high yeah and going off that point we've actually seen u.s soccer admit this in in one of the the u.s uh, soccer conferences they mentioned as a couple years back that part of uh part of their plan moving forward was to have games in smaller stadiums price it high and even if they like attendance goes down revenue still goes up because like who cares if <laughs> who cares if you have 7000 fans if they're paying like 120 dollars each to be there that's still going to be more profitable than 30 dollar tickets with 14000 fans obviously yeah i mean they they're restricting the supply with while well, holding demand relatively constant right because mm-hmm. the so Obviously, they're going to see that they can increase prices. But Jack, the question is, like with U.S. soccer dealing with this, the thing that we're talking mm-hmm. about here is, is U.S. soccer doing this moral? Is this a good choice? No. No. It's not. Right. It's not. It, yeah. it, 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 most of the time, if they're making a choice based off of economics, it's never the moral choice. Uh-huh. That, that's, <laughs> that, 
Not never, those are maybe. Big words. But, those are but, some pretty big words, man. But for the most part, if you're making it entirely based off of profit considerations, it's not the moral choice. That, yeah. that that's uh, because profit doesn't care about morals. Uh, it, it's it's very uh, it, it it's about money. It's about maximizing money. Mm-hmm. So when you when you consider that, it, it, it's not because people want enjoyment from from soccer from sporting events, right? And they're restricting the access artificially by increasing ticket prices because of using stadiums with lower capacity. They're artificially restricting a good that uh, they know people want to pay to see in order to drive up more money and take more money out of the pocketbooks of people who just want to support a team. Mm-hmm. They, and uh, they, they kind of almost exploit the idea of being a part of a community or a, like a soccer fan base against those people and be like oh well if you're a real fan you want the ultra supporter level ticket which is a thousand dollars right and like it's almost like guilting people into using their money on something where where like you know that they feel like they need to be a part of it and at that point it's not moral Mm -hmm. i agree obviously i'm a good person (laughs) it prices out the the most important fans i think which is young people yeah because young people build an atmosphere if i'm being honest uh families who obviously will bring their young kids uh make a large part of the of soccer uh enjoying public here in america and obviously underrepresented groups you look at minorities women like people of different backgrounds like like you know some of them some different groups socioeconomically do not have literally a 200 300 dollars lying around we as college students don't have 200 to 300 dollars exactly lying around we're trying to go to the u.s women's national team game here in st paul i'm not ready to look at those prices yeah i i haven't checked them yet but i'm sure they're crazy yeah or at at the very least the resale market is going to be crazy which is exactly why i'm about to go into the devil's advocacy mode i promise i'm not a bad person (laughs) oh no (laughs) no this 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 uh defense of u.s soccer is like relatively tame which is when you look at the resale market right this is about the price that gets set on the resale market i know because when when i qualified for nationals in uh speech uh i had to miss the u.s men's national team gold cup group game against guyana here in allianz uh, field and i i bought the tickets at 70 dollars and i sold them for 120 because i'm i'm a college student i'm like i have to make some extra money uh, so, so I made a, a cool hundred dollars when I sold my two tickets. Uh, so, you know, that's just how the resale market is. So if they if they set it at that like level and that's like the maximum that people are amount willing to pay, then obviously that stops scalpers from uh, screwing people over or I guess like U.S. soccer is now screwing people over. But it maximizes the money that U.S. soccer would get uh, instead of mi- like, you know, op- not optimize, like you said, uh whatever uh this next uh, defense of u.s soccer i feel bad for saying but at the same time this is u.s soccer you see u.s soccer's supposed way of fostering a home atmosphere by uh pricing mexican fans out as well because as you know u.s is very diverse it's our strength mm-hmm. you know we have, yep. we have we have people of all backgrounds here there's a lot of you know mexicans here because of well you know it's right there uh, south of the border <laughs> yep. so obviously that's how how that's gonna work and they they show out to games because you know soccer is a bigger sport 
relative to other sports there than it is here. And that creates hostile environments even when we're supposed to be playing a home game. So the way that, that the U.S. soccer has gone around to that is by putting it in historically whiter areas like Columbus. That's why Columbus was a powerhouse. That's why Minnesota, of all places, has been touted as potentially a new place to have the Mexico-U.S. game. But by supposedly you know rising raising prices it also prices out mexicans and hopefully more affluent americans get it i feel bad for saying that because i i don't think that's true i also don't think that's right that is just a a defense there uh in my opinion like this is me talking now the best possible way that we can handle this is kind of how how people should be dealing with shortages during hurricanes you know when when people need like toilet paper or whatever which is you limit the amount that people can buy to stop resellers, right? Uh-huh. You limit who can buy it. So the majority of tickets can go to American outlaw members, uh, U.S. soccer insiders, which is like kind of like a, a supporters group kind of thing that, that U.S. soccer has. Uh, kind of like, if, if you're familiar with Minnesota United, like the, the preserve yep. or like the, mm-hmm. the email list or whatever, and uh, just season ticket holders of the local teams. That way you kind of... You you maintain the Americanness of uh the uh, of the stadium, while at the same time you're able to actually allocate away fans and that stuff. You're able to control like uh the fan base while at the same time, because you are you know limiting these tickets, you can sell them at a lower price. It also helps if you ban reselling. So so any ticket that's not bought directly from uh you is void. I don't know if that's legal or not, but that's just the way I see it. Jack, with the future of ticket prices, what should U.S. soccer be doing to help fix this issue? Because it's such a multifaceted, you know, profit versus humanity issue. What do you think? They're never going to try and fix it. That let's be let's be real. I maybe, really? maybe I'm being too pessimistic. But that they're, is, they're yeah, they're they they want profit. They want money. That that's how it works, unfortunately. And because of that. They're not going to try and change it and be and be like, oh, yeah, we're lowering the tickets because we care about humanity. That, that doesn't sound like something I've heard like any corporation saying if they do say it, they're tricking you yeah. some, one way or another. Uh, but it, they're, they're going to try it. They're going to price these tickets as high as they can without shutting at, uh, like everyone out of the market, really, because, you know, if if no one buys the tickets, then obviously they make nothing. Mm-hmm. So they're obviously going to keep pricing them as high as they can because that's how that's how the market works. They're going to find where they can optimize their profit at the at the point where enough people will buy them at the highest possible price that they're willing to buy them. And unfortunately, that's how it works. Reselling sucks. Yes, I, I'm not sure if you can really ban it. I'm sure I'm, I know there's some places that are able to do that. By like you need to provide ID when you when you go through there, but that that's impractical, I, I think. And yeah, it, it's just there. It's so pessimistic, it really is. But there there's no there's no way they're going to change it unless like people actually stand up and be like, hey, uh, we're not going to buy your tickets because mm-hmm. they're insanely overpriced. And yeah, I, I also think like uh, their excuse of like, oh, we're making sure that we don't get a ton of Mexican fans uh, tune in or like come to the stadium to watch it. The The Nations League final was in Denver, 
Denver isn't known for having like a huge Mexican population. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure that it's not like a huge Mexican population in Denver, at at, at least to my knowledge. So I, I feel like that's that's a bit of a of a, of a weak excuse right. for it uh, to to say like yeah that that's that's the reason why because the thing is you know they they're they're probably going to to go regardless to to the games yeah. and because they support their team and I, I think another part of it is like you know the the reason why the U.S. can't price these tickets high and expect more U.S. supporters to come out is that we don't have the culture that other countries have when mm-hmm. it comes to soccer. It's it, it's it sucks to say, but it's true. Like I, it's the reason why season tickets for like West Ham. Do you know how much they cost per for an entire season for the 19 games? Uh, no, tell me. 300 pounds. Okay. Which is like, around, I think, around $400. So, like, en- enough to buy, like, two U.S. men's national team tickets, basically. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like, the reason why they're able to do that is because they know people will go to the stadiums and that they'll pay for them because the market's there. The U.S. hasn't done enough to develop the market in order to price them this high. They're going in the wrong order for this. Right. So it like, yeah, this is a failure by the by the US Soccer Federation. They're I, I mean, if they're going to try and like rip people off of money by pricing tickets incredibly high, at least build a culture where people feel like they're yeah. obliged to go to the games first. If if you're going to try and make profit, do it right, I guess. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that that it, it just Makes no sense, really. Mm-hmm. Some fighting words from Jack. I like it. Uh, huge, this is, yep, I, I completely agree. Most fans agree. Huge indictment on U.S. soccer's part uh, and a, a, a grim picture of a future that Jack is painting for us. But that is likely the future that they will go on. But the way they should go on is obviously my plan, which is to just lower prices and find workarounds i mean that's what they should do but i don't think they will yes exactly that's the that's the future that fans want that's the future that the world wants but obviously that's not gonna happen what else is not gonna happen is well what could happen i should say is maybe our mexican or hispanic american outreach could improve we've seen stories from people like hercules gomez tell stories about how poorly ussf management is it has when it comes to recruiting Hispanic Americans and specifically Mexican Americans, coaches passing up on them because they don't value them, ostracizing them for speaking Spanish, not having a lot of Spanish speaking coaches. And we've seen the effects of this on Lina Harajo and David Ochoa, who are likely to move or have already moved to Mexico in their national team. Many just don't feel welcome. And I know people like Francisco of Twin Oaks TV have said that they don't want to be pandered to. Which is fair. I yeah. obviously like yeah. like as, as minorities, we obviously know like <laughs> what pandering is like. Oh yeah, but I think U.S. soccer is just doing the bare minimum here, and it's. I don't think it's really pandering to say that we should expect U.S. soccer to value people as humans, which is you know from stories that we've seen, we've heard from Mexican Americans or people who have been close to this uh, this pipeline uh, for youth players has said that it's, it's not happening. So, and it's not just recruiting. U.S. soccer for the longest time has failed to do outreach to Hispanic fans. We talked about the ticket prices at length, but the Spanish-speaking account has been dormant for a long time for U.S. soccer. Uh, you rarely hear any community outreach into majority Hispanic neighborhoods the same way you see outreach into white neighborhoods. Like, right off the top of my head, like, 
uh, uh, Pulisic stomping grounds, you know, uh, in a Hershey, in Hershey Pennsylvania. Yeah. yeah, that's obviously like him doing that. But when you look at like U.S. Soccer Federation creating uh, a futsal course uh, courts around the place, even if they are majority Hispanic neighborhoods, they don't advertise it as heavily as they should. Now, obviously, that might get to the the pandering section, but th- there is something to say about like if you make your presence known you're more likely to foster a positive community of growth and acceptance which is important for you know hispanic americans and any dual national american you and i included there uh and in general it is hard to you know have good outreach when you don't have a bona fide star or famous staff member on your team but jack in general, before I give my piece, because I, I obviously have some thoughts on this, what what can U.S. soccer do to improve Hispanic outreach? Which is, I don't know, you're a political science major, right? Do you ha- do you have any like opinions on on that? Uh, well, voter outreach isn't like my specialty for things, okay. uh, but I, I will say that they could start by doing you know the bare minimum, maybe because are, are, they, are they not doing the, no? Do you, they're not okay. even doing that. They're not maintaining a, a, a Spanish language account for for these things. Even mm-hmm. like hey, you know, they, sorry, I, I, I do <laughs> I have to say something. They they did start like tweeting in Spanish uh, as before the World Cup, which uh, qualifying, which is you know good. Then I, they tweeted some more today, and I was like, oh no, today's Hispanic Heritage Month. Is this just pandering? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, I think, like, expecting a Spanish language account for these teams should be a bare minimum because, like, you know, I, I'm pretty sure, and I, I could be completely wrong on this, but I feel like even Minneapolis City, like our local league team, I'm pretty sure they have other language accounts. Yeah, the, the, for, they just started their uh, Spanish one this this past month or whatever. Exactly. Like, they're doing more than the U.S. Soccer Federation is. Like, and there's not, like... There, there is a Hispanic population in, like, the Twin Cities, right? But it's not, like, the biggest population, out, like, uh, say, as in, like, you know, El Paso or uh, any anywhere, you know, in the Southwest, really. Mm-hmm. California. So, right, California. Uh, New Mexico, like, for yeah. Phoenix Rising. Yeah. and uh, which is, you know. Phoenix is in Arizona. My bad. Yep. New yes. Mexico United. Yep. <laughs> That's what I meant. And it's funny you mentioned El Paso and I mentioned uh, California and L.A. because that is where— Ricardo Pepe, mm-hmm. uh, uh, David Ochoa, Uli Naranjo grew up. So, you know, obviously, if you don't have positive outreach on social media or in those communities, you're going to be losing out on not just recruiting those players, because obviously that's, we care about that as like fans, but just as like the human perspective, U.S. soccer is, you know, failing at its job to just make Mexican Americans feel comfortable supporting a national team because if Mexico's not going to accept them because they're American and we're also not going to ex- accept them because they're Mexican American what are, who what are they going to do what are we doing who knows yeah i mean uh, i i i th- that that made me think of something because yeah, sure. i remember when ochoa was picking uh mexico and uh, so so that happened and people were like, you know, they, they were kind of amicable about it at first and like were a little bit friendly, like, oh, yeah, best of luck, whatever. Sucks to lose him. Uh, first of all, I, yeah. I, I did not see that as much from, from like 
from like smarter fans. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, <laughs> no offense. But, I mean, that's, I mean that, that's how it kind of started. But then Ricardo Pepe uh, writes this letter and says, I feel really comfortable with the U.S. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden I saw a ton of tweets saying like, oh, David Ochoa must be lying because Ricardo Pepe feels comfortable with it. Right. Don't do that. That that makes it more likely that Mexican-Americans aren't going to want to play for the U.S. Because mm-hmm. that's the exact kind of attack mindset that they perceive yeah. is going to happen to them. So if you say it can be both things. Yeah, that, that, that's stupid to, to try to uh, view... Uh, uh, I, I guess Hispanic Americans, yeah. Mexican Americans, as a was it a what's the word when it's like you think they're just like singular or whatever. I mean, just as a singular en- entity, like yeah. a, a massive group that all thinks the exact same. Yeah. I mean, monolith. There, a monolith. Go. That yeah. that's what it is. But like you, that's never the case, and you're actively ignoring the lived experiences of other people who said. This is how I felt about it. And a lot of the times they're even giving you advice on how to improve it. Yeah. And you, and for you to just say like, ah, but this other person who chose to play for us, he said that he yeah. felt comfortable. It can be both things at the same time. I'm, I'm sick of seeing people say that yeah. it can, that it's either one or the other. Yeah. Because it can be both. People have different lived experiences. It, that's it, that. That's my rant. And this is my, yeah, that, that was more on the, the U.S. soccer fan specifically. Right, right. But to be fair... U.S. soccer has not done a good job curbing that, right? Nor exactly. fostering a, a community where, uh, like, supporting Mexican Americans is a common thing, right? Most fans and I think U.S. soccer view Mexican Americans uh, as more of a, a tool rather than, I don't know, fellow humans. That, that, that that's no, obviously a stretch there. Like, no, I, I think I think you're right though. They're they're viewing. Uh, uh, they're viewing Mexican American players as a way to improve their reach to other Mexican American fans, which is not the way to see it. Like you should want them to play for you because, well, one, hopefully they're a good player, uh-huh. uh, and two, they're like a good human who feels comfortable playing in the U.S. and feels comfortable representing yeah. the U.S. like that. Uh, and if you're going to go out there and see them as these entities of controlling how the populace thinks of you. That's automatically going to mm-hmm. lose you credibility, and you know, we we've heard this happen so many times with Mexican American players who have gone through and been like, "Hey, this was my experience. Uh, I felt like I wasn't really being treated as like part of the team. I felt like I was being treated as you know a, a little bit of a tool to like to advertise, really, uh-huh. or and or, or very just simply annoyed. just like as an outsider, I, right? As an outsider, I. I I don't want to reach too far. I, I don't want. True. I don't want it to to seem too soapboxy, but it is very evidently true because we we've seen past evidence. We've seen literal people come out and say that their lived experience was not great under U.S. soccer's regime. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why they moved to to uh, uh, Mexico and their national team. So it, it that that part that obviously that obviously is not the, the reachy part of it because. This is something that U.S. soccer needs to improve. Right. You, they, you mentioned the the social media. Uh, I I think that they need to do a better job just uh, making the game more accessible for Mexican Americans and developing a better pipeline for them to get involved within the local American soccer communities, mm-hmm. like proper talent scouting and not passing up on them, having more. Mexican head coaches, Spanish speaking head coaches, because that's obviously important when you have a large, you know, 
other than English, Spanish is the most speak language in America. So obviously, the more Spanish speaking head coaches you have, coaching staff you have, the more likely it is that you have a more uh, fluid pipeline from a potential star to a a, a player that could be useful for the U.S. national team. And more importantly, is just more comfortable within this grander scheme community. Yeah, I mean, it's like the Canadian, the Canadian Soccer Federation. They have coaches that speak English and French, which is incredibly important when you consider that one of the provinces of Canada oh, yeah, I never speaks, about that. speaks French. Yeah. Like that, that was a huge part of when the Montreal Impact were looking for a new coach. One of the requirements was, you know, they need to be able to speak French to connect with the community, to connect with the players. And like U.S. soccer should follow that because... You know, in, maybe in the U.S. it's a lot more difficult because it's not like, you know, Montreal where there's two major languages. There, there's English and there's French. But even then, like, how hard is it to find at least one coach out there who speaks Spanish mm-hmm. and English? Who, how hard can that possibly be? Like, I, I mean, I feel like everyone I've ever met has had to take a foreign language class at least once in their life. Yeah, I took I get, Chinese and I uh, am bad at it. Still, I, I, I took French and I, I still remember uh, a little bit of it, but, you know, probably not en- enough to do it. But I, I still think they, there needs to be more outreach to find those coaches because it's so important. Mm-hmm. That, that is all I really have to say about it. I, I think the future of Hispanic American outreach needs to be more involved, like Jack said, more than the, the bare minimum or at least the bare minimum compared to what they have been doing and it's more or less like just fostering a community where they can feel welcome, whether it's the players or the fans. And I, I think a large cause of this is actually the next issue I'm going to talk about, which is a very quick one. We're going to move on to the next topic right away. But the, it, it's, the, it's the boys club mentality of U.S. soccer. And I think this is like the larger cause for many of the previous issues we've mentioned. There's the nepotism. Jay Berhalter hired his brother, Greg Berhalter, did not do a very thorough head coaching job because they uh, like head coaching hiring job because they didn't even interview some some uh, some head coaches that were open to getting hired like Tab Ramos not yeah Tab Tab Ramos uh, Tata Martino I think Bielsa might have been also interested in really? in, okay. in the job or maybe that was just Atlanta United I'm getting I think stuff it, I think stuff. it was Atlanta United. But I would have taken Bielsa too. Actually, no, I wouldn't have. <laughs> Never mind. That's that's actually sounds like a, a terrible idea, even though he's done well in the past. Uh, but many MLS head coaches get head coaching jobs because they're familiar. They're either friends with with the 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 USSF guys. And speaking of head coaching jobs, the youth national team still do not have many head coaches for both the men's and the women's side, I believe. And they have put the bare minimum into hosting youth camps during the pandemic. There is a U-20 tournament hosted by Mexico this winter that we are going to. I believe it's U-20. I believe it's Mexico. I know it's Mexico. but And you, uh, one indictment that's been very common to say recently is that you have to be in Chicago to be a head coach, which very much limits the amount of head coaching hires they can make and overall, like, like obviously, this entire, like, like boys club, like, uh, like they, they hire their friends. There's not much, like, progressive movement there. It's a lot of, lot of white dudes, if I'm being honest. A lot of white dudes. That, that's a major issue. I don't really have much to say about that other than that's, that's bad and that should change. 
uh, di- diversity is our strength. I already mentioned that. Jack, anything else to add before we move on to uh, a very big topic? I mean, I'm, I'm just going to say you have to pay attention to your lower or not lower, uh, your your younger teams, your youth teams. Otherwise, uh, you know, the reason why our women's team was so dominant for such a long time is because we did have development on the on the U.S. women's side for a while. But that's why other places are catching up because they're catching up on youth development. And that's why we can't really break into like the elite echelon, I guess, of of like national teams because we don't develop our youth talent at the national level all that well. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the U.S. Women's National Team, Shaq. Of course. Equal pay lawsuit has been in the news for the past couple of years. Right. Uh, and it's been a while since that the U.S. Women's National Team filed that lawsuit against U.S. soccer for pay discrimination and unfair and unequal treatment. There's been countless court hearings and judge rulings. They found that the, the U.S. Women's National Team and the Women's National Team have a different CBA structure that purposely actually limits uh, U.S. Women's National Team's potential earnings uh, in favor of better base earnings. Still, it's been proven and uh, refuted and, you know, all legal jargon. Uh, but it has been proven that the women do get less charter flights on average, worse hotels, and of course have been subject many times having to play on artificial turf more than the men. I can't really remember the last time the men had to go long stretches of time playing on artificial turf. Most time it's on grass fields Uh, that's why we don't really play in the pacific northwest for that exact reason and recently there have been many briefs that have came out uh about whether or not the us women's national team are getting a fair shake uh obviously there is that that notion of i I guess it is defensible that you know us women's soccer on average you know they do get a lot of benefits that they do get more benefits than the men because uh, the men could obviously get paid a ton for their club team or could be paid a ton the club team. That's not the same with the women's team. So they do get uh, some, some nice uh, work benefits uh, when it comes to their prize money. It is in the long run equal to the men when you look at the past window. But like I said before, there have been a lot of issues with these uh, contracts uh, including some uh, legal briefs from the past uh, court hearings that, that different organizations have put together, including AFL-CIO, I'm forgetting what that stands for, but they found that if the initial contract violated the Equal Pay Act, then the employer has no defense against pay discrimination lawsuits. So th- that sets up the precedent that obviously, if it violates the EPA, U.S. soccer is in trouble. And the EEOC, which is equal... Employment Opportunity Committee. There you go. There Ooh, you go. Was that commission, I think. Commission? I think that's right. I, that, that, I just completely guessed that based <laughs> on the, the initials. But they said you can't really pay women less just because they agree to that because that is in violation of the EPA. And I think that has a lot to do with uh, limiting manipulation and like using power dynamics to pressure people into signing a, a lesser contract and using that as an excuse to pay them less. Uh, and the, the U.S. National Soccer Team Player Association uh, basically found that USF did not grow players' wages at the same rate as their own revenue and how the revenue grew. That even though women did make more, they also had to achieve more competitively to get to that place, which is unfair considering the imbalance and competitiveness between the two teams. We also got news literally just yesterday at the time of recording on Tuesday that US soccer has uh, repeatedly used the media to drive a narrative 
which most recently, like I said, on Tuesday, they supported and released uh, a notion, um, a, a media press release saying that they support an equal CBA and that they are willing and planning to give the male and the females uh, an equal CBA, collective bargaining agreement, which on paper is, you know, what you'd expect the, the woman would want. But then the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association said that this was a media uh, PR stunt. And, you know, both, confusing on both sides, to be honest. Uh, but, you know, U.S. soccer has historically pointed towards the reason why they can't pay them perfectly, even though they, they, they were found at fault for not giving them, like, proper accommodations and all that stuff. But in terms of just, like, straight-up money, they have pointed towards the disparity of the World Cups as something that they can't control. Uh, I, I think the entire player, uh, the team purse, the award purse for the Men's World Cup was $400 million. Uh, women's, I want to say it's 30 to $40 million, uh, in all for the, the prize money. So obviously there's some inequity, inequality there, and they have kind of uh, deflected blame, I guess is like the most objective way you could mm -hmm. say it, saying that like, we support uh, the men's and the women's national team pressuring FIFA to increase uh, the, the, the prize pool for the women's uh, FIFA World Cup and all that. All this is, is very confusing. Uh, Jack, what are your thoughts? Because I, I am, m my brain hurts thinking about the morals of this. Uh, well, I think, I think it's a relatively clear moral choice that they should be paid equally, you know, for, because, I mean, they, I, I think, I think that that's just like the right thing because they, they do the same thing, if not better things than the men's national team in terms of trophies won, you know, uh, and, I think they deserve to get a uh, a fair a fair share of of, of uh, what U.S. soccer makes. Uh -huh. Like restricting uh, how much they make based off of the revenue that they get, like it's ridiculous. But but uh, to be devil's advocate here, okay. I, I hate that term. I hate that I've been using that. Uh, but if part of that the money that they receive that the men's receive is based on the prize pool of the FIFA World Cup or whatever competition in they're in, and that just so happens to be more than the women's make. Is that on the U.S. Soccer Federation, or is that like, like, how do we guarantee equal pay w w within the confines of U.S. Soccer's potential actions? Well, I mean, I think it part of it is FIFA FIFA's like allocations for it, right? Like some things you can't really change. Uh, but they can also change other things like, uh, you know, adequately like sharing revenue for, from these kinds of things. And like, you know, uh, I mean, accommodations, like making sure that teams have equal accommodation should be a minimum. You can, honestly. Also, you can also look at PR. And even right. though the U.S. Women's National Team has gotten PR, a lot of that comes from outside sources, commercials and stuff. Right. And also a lot of that is just spurred on by the fact that the U.S. Women's National Team is the best team in the world. If the U.S. men's national team was the best team in the world, you would probably see more U.S. men's national team than the U.S. women's national team. And even right now, I feel like in terms of U.S. soccer promoting stuff, it's pretty equal as it is, even though U.S. women's national team is still one of, if not the best team in the world, which, you know, 
points to PR discrepancies. Right. Yeah. I mean, it it's such a tough issue because right, right, right. so so much of it comes down to uh, you know the World Cup uh, and how much teams get from that. But when you know one team gets more money for not even qualifying for the World Cup than the other one who wins the World Cup the year after, the, and, and they're in the same nation, you, you know something's messed up with, with mm-hmm. it. I, I feel like the achievement that the, uh, that the women achieved should be viewed as far better as failing to qualify for the World Cup, and that's just not represented financially. And, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I've seen... This isn't U.S. soccer's fault, or maybe it partially is for how they've controlled the narrative on it, but... So many comments on like on like videos of like uh, female soccer players on like TikTok or YouTube are like, oh, and they want equal pay after they make like a mistake or something, right? I, which is ridiculous. That's a that's a tangent, but no, j- like but, we can we can get into that because you, you're right. Like, and this is why I was going to talk about transparency. Part of that lack of transparency is like the, the U.S. Soccer Federation mentioned that they wanted to give an equal CBA. We don't know what is in that CBA. They right. just mentioned that to mention that. The U.S. Soccer Comms account has repeatedly, like whenever the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association or like someone says something about like, oh, we want equal pay, they'll go on like a giant Twitter thread about like how uh, the uh, U.S. Soccer Federation is actually perfect. And like, oh, yeah. like, what do you mean that? Where are you getting uh, these stats? Y- you aren't being 100% transparent because I remember in a Twitter thread, they specifically mentioned like how they give equal accommodations when demonstrably in the legal justice system that was proven false yeah and we don't know what's in the supposed equal cba that they touted uh, on tuesday because for all we know it could potentially uh be worse for the woman uh in the long term because it's not taking into account how the, the women's national team relies on this cba and the revenue that they get from the women's national team more than the men do because they have the the club teams to fall back on. So, you know, like framing this narrative as like the women are being selfish has really bled into our society. And obviously there's already like sexist that will jump onto that. I I personally think, I I hate to both sizes, but a a, a large part of this does uh, fall onto the PR moves that the U.S. Women's National Team has uh, touted, and I, I obviously support the U.S. Women's National Team, and in this fight because I am a good person. Uh, but when they when they said uh, uh, talking about how U.S. soccer, this is a media spin. It's it's like it's a, a it's just a, a PR move. I, I really wanted to know like like what is going on in the background. What what specifically are the, the U.S. Women's National Team's goals. And I guess they can't really say that or else they'll be giving up too much leverage. But both sides, and actually, no, U.S. soccer specifically like muddied the water because they, they do have like a good amount of the, the, the leverage, even the PR leverage, because, like, yes, U.S. Women's National Team, they do have their supporters who are like, we obviously pay women more. But you have to believe that a large majority of U.S. soccer fans of, like, people in general we could look at uh, some certain like political leanings are going to be against the women's national team and by u.s soccer controlling the narrative they've muddied the water into discussion where 
even right now, I don't really know how to frame this discussion other than I want the woman to get paid more. I don't know exactly what they want. I don't know what U.S. national team wants. I don't know what U.S. Soccer Federation wants to get out of this other than to get out of hot water because it's it seems pretty clear that they're not doing this just for equality's sake. Like, Jack, I've been rambling, but like, yeah, say I, something. I, I guess the, the main issue is... I, I think we can both agree U.S. soccer handled it horribly, that they, they, they haven't handled this well. Yeah. This has been a, this has definitely been a failure by them. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, the lack of information about the trial and how it's uh, and how it's written about, uh, like just accessibly to the general public. So they're relying mostly on what they hear on like Twitter or what they hear from like U.S. soccer themselves. And because of that, like, like you said, they're dominating the narrative and it allows them to kind of spin it and say like, oh, we gave all of these things, even though, like you said, they proved it wrong. The courts have proved it wrong that they're that they've been lying. But there's no checks on on what they're doing. No one seems to check any of that. And because of that, they they end up getting to spin the narrative however they want and because of that, it's allowed so many sexists to come out and uh, from the, I mean, not from the woodwork because they've been around all the time uh-huh. uh, and, you know, allowed them to keep controlling the narrative for them. They've re- they they are actively benefiting from the sexism from other people to yeah, that's that's they, really true. I never really thought about that. They they have they they can like say, oh, we just put out this tweet from our perspective. Right. And they can say we didn't cause any of this. But that's what they did because that's where people are getting their information from. They're getting them from the press releases and from from news stories yeah, that that draw from you from the U.S. soccer yeah, press releases. Wow, yeah. So they have actively they they may have not not have like actively been sexist themselves, may, maybe not. But they have actively benefited from the sexist behavior of individuals and have done nothing to stop it. And for that reason, this is an entire failure. And uh, that that that's that that's my that's my take on it. They, they've if if they're benefiting from sexism, they're on the wrong side. That's very enlightening, Jax. I, I never really thought about that because you're a hundred percent right. I, I I know people are going to disagree with us in terms of the U.S. Women's National yeah. Team getting paid equally and like what, what our thoughts are about that. And even right now, I'm not completely informed. That's why I, I just said some general things. I do eventually want to get someone that's very, very uh, well versed in these in, in legalese to come on yeah. and talk about what's going on right now, where these these two parties stand. But just from like a human, a very human standpoint, it is 100 percent true that the U.S. Soccer Federation is knowingly or unknowingly bending the narrative in their favor and pitting pitting people against the U.S. Women's National Team and framing them in a way that may or may not be true, most likely not true because I highly doubt that the women are like greedy as, as they are saying. They can say all they want, like, oh, we support equal pay or whatever. But if they're not going out and like really stomping all these issues out, or really creating an atmosphere, creating movement towards equal pay, and you know, muddying the water more than the U.S. Women's National Team is muddying it, then 
we just get into this big spaghetti bowl of a mess, and I don't even know what to think. Yeah, the reason why it's so complex is because U.S. soccer has probably intentionally, but let's be real, probably uh, intentionally done it, it this way in order to muddy the water and make it look like, you know, that they, they can claim some semblance of being the good guys in it. And that's just not the full story. And yeah. that's why it makes it so difficult to talk about this and so difficult to change anyone's mind because afterwards, then people, because people are informed by this narrative, they'll post stuff on, online about like, you know, of like, uh, you know, some misses uh, in women's soccer games, which can be bad sometimes. But we've seen Kevin De Bruyne miss a, a, an open goal from one yard away. <laughs> yeah. These aren't isolated to the women's game. And it, it's it. It's terrible what it's allowed what it's allowed to happen because I I, I saw like a video uh, from this TikTok account called Tomorrow's Goalkeeper. It was like uh-huh. a high school a high school goalkeeper. Uh, uh, she she was uh, you know practicing for a game, and you know she there there was a a, a ball she probably could have claimed. Uh, the caption also said she she was a right back playing as goalkeeper for the game, and people were like, oh, this is why women don't get to deserve to get paid more. Or the, the same as men, because yeah. they're not the same. They're not as good. Ugh, give me a break with this. Like, come on. It's it's ridiculous what they've allowed to occur. And the silence on it says everything. Mm-hmm. Very, very well said, Jack. I'm going to leave it there with the U.S. Women's National Team. Obviously, U.S. Soccer has a lot to do there. We do not have all the answers because, frankly... I highly doubt most people outside of these two parties really have an answer that, exactly. that they enjoy. Yeah. So, Jack, we'll leave it there. Overall, give me give me a letter grade for U.S. Soccer and how they've done the past year. The past year. Let's go. Let's go past five. Ooh. Like the um, general trend. I think it's it, it depends. Like on the field, uh, in in the men's game, it's been trending in the right direction. On the women's side, it's been trending in the wrong direction. Off the field. Off the field, it's been trending bad both <laughs> both ways. So I wouldn't say it's like a C because I don't think they're like passing, honestly. Maybe a C minus, D plus, like in that range. Yeah, Maybe. Can, can I give them like a 69% just like a D plus, C minus range? Yeah, that's that's where they are because they're they're definitely not like earning a passing grade on how to run a national team. Yeah. But there is, is any national team like any federation no, really not. passing probably right not. now? No, I I, th- I don't think any federation is passing, but like, you know, they they're, they're yeah, definitely no. they're def they're not completely failing. But they're also not passing. Yeah. Like they're they're somewhere in the in the in the D plus C minus range. Mm-hmm. They're gonna have to retake it for credit. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'll have to take it past no credit, so it doesn't affect their GPA. Yeah. Maybe do some extra credit assignments to get yeah. that, that that boosted to like a a nice C minus C. Yeah. <laughs> Jack, that is all I have to say about U.S. soccer. I'm tired of U.S. soccer. I'm tired of saying that word. <laughs> Where can people find us on the social medias if they want to hear us talk about a variety of different topics? Yes, they can find us on Twitter at Final Third Show. Uh, Participate in the prediction game we have every week. You can participate. Uh, You can interact with uh, with comments and uh, and, uh, about different takes that we have on the the world of soccer. What's going on? Like uh, some takes about how RB Leipzig should probably be doing better and how it's and uh, probably, I, I'm not sure if you tweeted about it, but Sebastian Allaire uh, scoring four goals because that's what happens when Ajax registers their players yeah, properly. That's exactly what I tweeted. Okay, yeah. there we go. <laughs> so, you know, inter- interact with all of those kinds of things. 
Uh, and you know, yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> yeah. And follow us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on Spotify, Apple podcasts, what have you leave us a rating. We leave, we read out any five star reviews on the show and yeah, tell your friend about the show. Tell your dad about the show. Sure. He'd love to hear about us soccer. We're going to see you guys next Monday for a jam packed news and predictions episode. And we'll see you guys same time, same place for next week's also jam packed deep dive episode. See ya. Bye for now.